Welcome to the Pacey Performance Podcast. Today, I'm speaking to Technical Lead for Performance at Surrey Sports Park, James Wilde. Thanks for tuning in to the Pacey Performance Podcast. So a much overdue part two coming up with James Wilde. So James first featured in episode 64 of the podcast. So this is basically an update from that episode. So it got incredible reviews, that first one, which is why I can't believe it's been so long until we, until we redid it and, uh, and got a part two in the book. So in this episode, we discuss James's approach to training speed in team sports, which if you've read any of, it, any of his recent research, uh, you'll know he's an absolute gun in. Speed testing and reporting, uh, and he refers a lot to a book chapter that he wrote in um, the, the recent uh, publication, which was edited by Anthony Turner. And while we're on that subject, we discuss, like I said, we discussed that chapter a lot. And I just wanted to make it clear, James wanted to make it clear that it wasn't just his book chapter. It was alongside Ruth Waghorn, Jonas Dodu, uh, former um, guest on the podcast, and John Goodwin. So just wanted to make sure we'd clear that up. And other topics in this podcast uh, include caution when using cues, why SNC coaches aren't comfortable coaching speed as they are in the gym, and a little bit about internships uh, again, and um, and gaining employment in strength and conditioning. So I know this you'll absolutely love this episode because I did. I think it was the most notes I've ever taken in the podcast. So hopefully that fills you with confidence that you'll get tons from this episode because I, I absolutely know that you will. And I can tell you that 99 times out of 100, in an acute setting, if you cue someone and they change their technique from what how they'd normally sprint, they will be running slower. So just before we do get into this episode of the podcast, I want to say a big thanks to Val Performance, makers of the Nordboard, Groin Bar, Human Track, and now Force Decks. So the big news coming out of Val Performance is that acquisition of Force Decks and all the staff, the fantastic staff that come along with that acquisition. So a really exciting development in terms of what Val Performance can offer in terms of uh, testing solutions. So may, you've maybe heard of the Nordboard, you've maybe heard of the Groin Bar, um, but if you are interested in a affordable uh, motion capture device, make sure you have a little look at Human Track. And also there is a post recently on LinkedIn from Dr. Daniel Cohen, who was the uh, one of the founders of Force Dex and explains why they decided to partner with Val Performance moving forwards. So I definitely encourage you to check that out. And if you are interested in any of the Val Performance products, head over to valperformance.com or follow them on Twitter at Val Performance. So big thanks to them guys for sponsoring this episode today. So without further ado, over to the episode with James Wilde. Thanks for tuning in to the Pacey Performance Podcast. So absolutely delighted this morning to welcome James Wilde back to the podcast, who first came on three years ago, just over three years ago in episode 64. So welcome to the podcast, James. Thanks, Rob. Pleasure to be back. It's good to have you back. So just want to give us a little bit of an update on probably first place to start is what's changed over the last three years in terms of your in terms of your job job role. Um obviously still at the Surrey Sports Park, but I hear a change of title, which you're delighted with. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> cool. So, yeah, um, what's changed, mate? All right, fine. Well, I'll, I'll try and keep it brief. But so at the moment, I am um, the technical lead for performance at Surrey Sports Park. So I provide the technical input for the different athlete support services for the teams and athletes we work with here. Um, so that, that's been a bit of a, a change in my uh, role here. And then apart from that as well, I'm also contracted to work with uh, Harlequins, the rugby club who obviously play in the uh, premiership. So my role with those guys is to run their speed and agility program for the first team squad. So I'm coaching the players on a weekly basis, mainly the backs, um, and I oversee the, the speed, strength, power, diagnostic side of things, which helps inform their speed and uh, gym-based work that they do. Um, 
Also, I'm a teaching fellow at the University of Surrey as well. So I think I probably just about started there when um, we spoke last. But so I, I teach on the undergrad sports science degree, which is um, quite good fun. And then also I head up the athletic development for England women's lacrosse, having previously been their SNC coach for the last World Cup cycle. Um, so it's all pretty busy and I'm still trying to complete a PhD and being married and having two kids and all of that. Um, oh, and a tutor for the UKCA now as well. But um, but it's all good. I'm, I'm, I'm all happy. I, you know, I get most of my weekends and most of my evenings. So it, it's all cool from my side. So I just want to give us a run, quick rundown on the PhD. Yeah. So I am primarily looking at the uh, biomechanics and motor control of sprint acceleration, but specifically in uh, professional rugby players. So that's uh, the broad title of it. And when are you are you near completion? Or are you in the thick of it? Uh, I, I'm well in the thick of it. I've got the majority of the, the data that I need is just time to write up. So trying to fit it in whilst working full time is it, it, the challenge. But fortunately, I'm able to use um, the data that I uh, collect from working with with Harlequins to to be able to, to um, put those projects together. But um, so I'm near enough there in terms of having the data, but just time to write it up. I reckon realistically, probably another two years until I'm finished, but but it's fine. I, I never really did it. To, yes, obviously I want to get a PhD, but I more did it to help try and answer some questions and improve my practice along the way really as much as trying to get it done as quick as I can to say I've got a PhD, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So is he doing that? Has he done that so far? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, inevitably, this kind of stuff always throws up more questions, but I, I, I do think it helps inform my kind of practice and refine stuff along the way. Yeah, nice. So we'll probably come on. Well, we'll come on to the recent publication um, that's just come out, as well as your the book chapter that you've done for Anthony Turner's book. But first off, first off, and probably a massively um, huge question I'm going to ask you. But approach <laughs> to training in terms of speed for sprinters versus team sports and we'll probably go on team sports first and the, the sprinters will come on to the the recent article but approach to, to training speed for team sports and i guess that links in with your with your role at lacrosse and um and harlequin so it'd be good to get a bit of an overview of that and then we can dive a little bit deeper cool all right um well i, I guess we, we all know right that sprint performance is determined by optimizing our ground reaction force characteristics and um, the problem is is that that Ground reaction force production during stances is pretty complex and it's influenced by multiple physical qualities, coordination and, and, and skill. And, and whilst the kind of more general SNC programs that, that might focus predominantly on fundamental strength qualities will, in most cases, have good benefit, there, there are a, a heap of other kind of approaches and perhaps a little bit more of an individualized approach that can be taken to impact team athletes' um, sprint performance. And this is especially true as the positive effects of a more general strength program diminishes as the athletes um, grows in terms of their, their training age and level of ex- expertise and, and their strength levels. So I think there's more, uh, probably more scope within a team sport setting to an in, impact on an on a, on a, uh, athlete's speed compared to um, obviously a sprinter who, you know, that that's all they're training for. So I think it's a little bit more untapped, if, if, if you like. And whilst there are, you know, numerous things that I'm going to consider to help me build a picture of each athlete of what might be necessary to help enhance their sprinting performance, I, I think there are probably four main areas that I'm, I'm most concerned with to help me build up that profile of that athlete. So they would be things such as, right, what, what's their current running or sprinting strategy? So how are they sprinting? Um, what's their injury history? What strength-related qualities do they possess or, or, or not? Um, and then also, what what is their actual sprint performance? So, what are their, their split times telling me? Um, so, if I, I'll go, I think I'll go through those areas first of all, and then then I'll go on to how I typically approach addressing some of those um, some of those things that, that I find during that profiling process. So, first of all, what what's their current sprinting you know strategies? I'm looking at how they sprint. How do they compare maybe against some of the key technical markers that I'm interested in? But also, how do some of the 
um, how can I put it, higher order kinematic variables in terms of their step velocity, step lengths, step rate, contact time, flight time. So how do these variables change um, across the acceleration phase? Um, how consistent are they at their max velocity? And what is their strategy for, say, achieving fast acceleration? So you can have different ways of you know, being fast over the first 10 meters. So for, for example, when considering the, like the initial acceleration phase, so if we are talking about that first 10 meters, so that will probably be achieved in about seven steps. And you'd expect to see that um, so contact times will reduce with each step and the flight times will increase, uh, increase progressively with each step. And during these initial steps, what, what you'll find is that the contact times will remain longer than the flight times. And, and this, this makes sense because we know that we need to generate large amounts of horizontal ground reaction force to produce the horizontal impulse necessary to accelerate in those initial steps. And we can't produce that horizontal ground reaction force whilst in the air. Um, so, you know, it's beneficial to have contact times that are longer than those flight times during acceleration. So, but whilst it's possible to have a, a high impulse by spending a longer time in contact with the ground, the acceleration of the athlete can actually be low if the um, magnitude of the impulse is achieved primarily through spending a longer time generating ground reaction force rather than by generating greater ground reaction force magnitudes, if that makes sense. So in, in such a case like that, you, you know, it might be that shorter contact times are necessary for an individual, um, which would increase the number of steps taken over a given distance so that the, the overall kind of net horizontal impulse produced over that distance might be the, the, the same as someone with a longer push-off, um, but it's just taking them more steps to um, reach that point so that the net impulse might be the same or, or greater. Then the problem here is that when that becomes too extreme, so is someone you know really chopping their stride and producing really short contacts at, at the start, um, then, as I said earlier, that they're not going to be spending enough time generating that horizontal impulse on the ground. So the ground reaction force vector is likely to be tilted more vertically to get off the floor quicker, resulting in longer flight times and therefore less time available for generating that horizontal impulse. So we've got this constant kind of challenge of optimization for the coach and athlete to, to work with those contact and flight times that might be you know, slightly unique to the individual to, to help improve their acceleration performance. So then we can profile that athlete in terms of their contact and flight time. So typically by looking at um, the ratios of, of one to the other, so we can look at their acceleration strategy. And then we can see how manipulating these over time affect their sprint acceleration performance. And then these variables, amongst others, will then obviously influence their step length and step rate, which determine you know, step velocity. And so again, we can look at them here at their dominance with regards to their step length and step rate, and we can look to monitor these and how these variables change over time in response to different training methods and see um, you know, whether they are running their fastest when either their step rate is higher or their step length is relatively higher. So what, what's their preference, so to speak? And then, you know, it might help you identify some of the training methods you, that, um, for that individual in an attempt to manipulate their step length and their step rate and also identify some of the key um, technical markers with regards to body and limb position and how they feed into these high order uh, performance kinematic variables too to help shape maybe some of the cues and tasks set for that athlete. Um, so that, that running strategy and, and how an individual runs it is, I feel, quite an important process to, to help build a picture of an individual. Then um, the next thing I'm concerned with is um, so the injury history. So is that influencing how they run and their strategy? Um, has a previous issue not really been fully addressed? And are there still some coordination issues with the limb concerned? Have the requisite strength quality levels been properly restored and, you know, or are there restrictions remaining unresolved? So then it might require a combination of therapy and other methods to address these issues. Um, and another thing to consider is if whether it is not actually possible to change a physical issue um, due to a previous injury. Um, and if this is the case, then you're potentially fighting a, a losing battle trying to alter their sprinting strategy when... Um, you know, which may be affected by that, that physical issue. Then um, moving on to, to the third area that I use to help build my profile for an athlete, 
which I think most SNC coaches can identify with is um, probably the most is the, like, the strength qualities that that individual possesses and how that might impact their sprinting ability. Now, there are obviously numerous tests which can be used to measure these qualities. And at the basic um, level, so, you know, we might look at some single outcome measures, which we might use um, such as, you know, height or power in a jump, for example. And, and whilst useful to see where an athlete is relative to a set of, say, normative data, they can't always necessarily be used as diagnostic tools to help inform our training. Now, whilst no test is um, obviously without its limitations, there are you know three main assessments I use. I think I, I spoke about before on the previous podcast um, that I use to help give me a broad understanding of the interrelated strength and power issues that might affect an athlete's ability to express force when they're, they're sprinting. Um, or they might provide me at least with a reason to explore some other avenues. So that those tests are um, a hip extensor torque assessment, which I've taken from um, John Goodwin and amended slightly, a squat jump force velocity profiling method based on that of Pierre Samazino, and an, an in-place like repeated jump assessment ad adapted from that introduced by Damien Harper, where I analyze, you know, contact time, jump height, RSI, and, and stiffness as well from there. Um, do, do you want me to go on to talk about those tests now? Or? That'd be, yeah, that'd be, that'd be superb. Yeah, just I'll, I'll, yeah, cool. with the hip extensor talk would be great. Just a bit more detail yep. around that, which I think we touched on before, but it'd be good to get a refresher. Cool. Um, so, yeah, so for the hip extensor talk assessment, I mean, whilst the strength in inverted commas that, that's expressed as – ground reaction forces during sprinting represents a collaborative effort of um, you know, muscles crossing the hip, knee and ankle joints. The hip extensor contribution to um, the horizontal ground reaction force production is, is pretty well recognized now, largely born out of the work by J.B. Morin. Um, and in the first few steps, it plays quite a key role in accelerating the, the center of mass forward during that first third of stance, provided the ankle is able to transmit that force effectively to the ground. And so the, the hip extensors are also likely to play a key role when we're approaching more of our top end speed in optimizing the amount of horizontal force needed um, during later acceleration, that top end stuff where a more upright um, body position is achieved at a, you know, a position that really a lot of team sport athletes would find themselves accelerating in rather than this you know, deep hanging kind of position from a, a standing block start. Um, and um, as the ground passes underneath the athlete, at the faster rate during the later stage of acceleration and top end speed, the contribution of those hip extensors to keep producing horizontal ground reaction force while the athlete deals with the more spring-like stiffness requirements in higher running velocity it is pretty key. So, so the hip extensor torque assessment tells me quite a bit. And, and with the, the geeky MacGyver device that I've set up, I can look at not just the, the peak torque produced, but also the rate of that um, production and or, or the angular impulse so it helps me to identify whether you know we might need to slant the training more towards max force type work or more rate of force type work um, with regards to their hip extensors just, then, a couple uh, of, just a couple of questions yeah. off that james yeah go for um, it. first one the device that you use just want to give us a bit of a, more of an explanation on what that looks like yeah. and what that is so the best way i can explain it is it looks like a, a box um, and on one flat side of the box, I've got a um, like a linear bearing system where I've got an old do-in um, lifting shoe with a toe cut off, and it's fixed to this system that can just slide up and down the box. So what it means is that um, we have quite good control over that foot position and how it can move, and therefore I'm able to much better standardize the um, test being carried out so that I can accurately identify the onset of the force production, um, which is useful when looking at um, more rate type measures. So without that um, box, the peak the peak force being produced is is reliable, but um, not the, the the rate of force or, or the angular impulse um, kind of um, metrics I'm looking at. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. Is there any pictures anywhere of that? I, I can send you one if you want. Yeah, that, um, yeah no, I mean, if anyone wants to get in touch, I mean, are you happy yeah, for yeah. people to get in touch? Okay, perfect. Yeah, yeah, no worries. Contact details yeah. and, and stuff cool. at the end. Um, okay. Second question. 
angle yeah. angle angle tested and and the reason I asked that is from what you said before about the different strategies um, of how people accelerate does the angle tested depend on how the the, the strategy that they've that you've assessed that we spoke about or is it a standardized yeah. angle yeah so I'll, I'll typically look at two two different um, angles where I'll, I'll, I'll um, base it around the angle of the hip um, so a more I'll use a more extended hip position for an estimation of the type of hip extensor torque requirements for the say more of the later stages of acceleration and top end. And then I'll have a much more flexed hip where less of the emphasis is hamstring driven and it's more towards the glutes to give me a bit more of an idea of the, the hip extensor strength qualities they might possess that relate to more of the early stages of, of acceleration. That makes sense. Mm -hmm. Yep, absolutely. Perfect. That's my two questions on that. Cool. Um, so then the, the next um, assessment I use um, is a squat jump force velocity profiling method. So um, following the, the methods of Samazino and his crew. Um, and from that, we can work out peak power of the leg extensors. Um, and it's a bit more biased towards the knee joint. Obviously, hip extensors towards very hip extensors, whereas this is a bit more biased towards the um, knee extensors, although it is the whole kind of global leg extensors. Um, and then we can look at, and I, I talked about this before, as, as many other people have now, like the optimal levels of force and, and velocity that might be required at a given peak power to maximize that push-off performance that might be related to those initial steps. So here we're looking at, um, you know, that ballistic leg extension quality of an athlete necessary to overcome inertia during those initial steps. Um, and this enables us to then, you know, tailor our squat-based pattern work to be more force, um, so more max force oriented, or to be able to work on producing more force at a higher velocity or a concurrent kind of development of both. There, any questions on that or should we go on to the nope, next one? All good. Yeah, cool. all good. And then the, the third the third strength quality assessment I, I use is like a repeated in, in place jump test for, for RSI. Um, and then to get an idea of how well they're able to transmit that force in, into the ground um, and how they're able to limit the amount of leg deformation. So that stiffness, but also looking at how they're able to store and return the elastic energy effectively. So, you know, more some, you know, level of compliance is necessary. So as I said, I, I use a, an RSI-based assessment adapted from Damien Harper. Um, so they, they do kind of 10 jumps in place, bilaterally, unilaterally, and I'll look at um, some of those those measures I've, I've looked at. Um, and really, and I think I've, I've explained this concept before, but the capabilities of the hip and the knee can only really be effectively realized in terms of manifesting itself in um, adequate ground reaction force production and in the right direction if it can be transmitted well through through the ankle. Um, so, yeah, so, so those three strength-based qualities um, will help build build some kind of picture just really so that you know the gym based work can be a little bit more specific once they've reached a certain um, strength level you know i feel it's quite important to become a little bit more specific with the approach taken so then the, the fourth kind of thing that i look at then to, to help build that that profile um, for the individual will be and their actual sprint performance so what are their split times look like over 5 10 30 and you know, potentially 40 meters look like, you know, what's their max velocity capability? How do these splits and their max velocity stack up against other players in their position? What is a good time? And, you know, where within the sprint phases are they strongest and where are they most lacking? And this means that then we can potentially spend more time attacking a, a you know, a phase of the sprint where there's greater scope for increasing their performance in that phase or look to build on a phase where they're already, you know, where they already perform well. And so here's where then it, you know, it's quite good where positional requirements come into play here. So, you know, if we're looking at a scrum half in rugby, then they might benefit from being able to accelerate rapidly over the first five metres as if picking up from the base of a rock or mall, whereas a back three player may need greater max velocity in comparison to a scrum half for situations such as in a kick chase or cover tackle. I um, mean, lacrosse defenders and attackers will spend you know, more time and, and more occasions sprinting over short distances where your middies are going to be, you know, again, needing greater max velocity compared to those attackers and defenders. Now, don't get me wrong. I think, you know, all positions can benefit from improving all sprint phases. Um, and I will work on all of them typically. But, you know, when it's appropriate to be more specific, that type of thing will help determine the type of training carried out as well. Um, now, whilst 
you know, there, there are lots of other issues that need to ex be explored, mostly in conjunction with a therapist to determine, I don't know, maybe joint function, movement limitations, etc. Those four areas that I've discussed help me build a relatively decent picture of where an athlete is at. And then based on this information, a more kind of specific approach can be taken to address issues which might um, constrain a team sport athlete's ability to run faster or address the needs more specifically in terms of what the technical coach wants them to be able to do and to match their playing style and the tactics um, required. And I think, as I said already, like this level of individualization is, is important after a certain point, um, you know, especially given the relatively small amount of time, it's sometimes possible to work with um, guys in a team sport setting, given the, you know, it's like the demands of their time during the training week from, from, from everyone else. Um, so from having identified, um, you know, things from the information gather, um, gathered that I've talked about, it might, you know, tailor some of that gym-based work and then, then obviously um, the, the speed type work as well. So that, that's a lot of the information there that, that I'd look at to help kind of inform, you know, a picture for those guys. And then from there, I decide, right, you know, then what do we do in terms of the training side of stuff? And um, I'm happy to talk about some of that now if you want or... Yeah, that that'd be superb. But just before we, just before we do get onto that, in terms of pulling all that together and make and, and making it, I'm just trying to visualize it. I think we spoke about it last time because you'd put quite a few uh, examples of your Excel work on on uh, yeah. social media on Twitter. How do you then visualize that to be able yeah. to make sense of of what priorities should be? Yeah. Okay. So if I look at just my my sprint kind of data reporting. So the, the way it looks, at, 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 I'm just thinking, so at the top of my report, I have, um, so if, if I'm talking about the rugby guys, actually, and, and the lacrosse girls as well. Um, so I have um, five meter times, um, 10 meter time. So for an individual athlete, they're five, 10, 30 meter times, their max velocity, their initial sprint momentum, their maximal sprint momentum. And then I'll have their time off for their, um, the last test they've done. And then the previous, say, four tests underneath that. And then I'll use um, magnitude-based inferences to um, explain whether those performances have got better, worse, or, or remained kind of stable. And that's all relatively easy to see in a, in a table right at the top that gives you that instant snapshot. Below that, I'll then present um, how they perform relative to other people in their position. And I'll use Z-scores here. And I'll look at um, the Z-scores and, and present that in, in a figure based on their 5-metre time, 10-metre time, their 10-20-metre split, 20-30-metre split, split uh, top-end speed, initial sprint momentum, maximal sprint momentum. And then within that figure, I've got, right, where are they? What's the average typically for their, um, their position? And then what are the highest, lowest scores in those positions as well? And what it does, as you look across at it, you can see then – across the phase of, say, a 30-metre sprint in their top end where they're kind of lacking. So you might have someone rapid over five that just dies a death after 10, or you might have, you know, the other way around where someone's, you know, crap at the start and then they pick up and their top end's really good. Or you might find sometimes that, right, we've got this individual who's great over zero to 10, 10 to 20, uh, yeah, 10 to 20, they're, they're poured or they drop down a bit, but then they pick up again and then it just enables you to think, right, well, why is that happening? And what kind of things can we do to address that? Then underneath that information, I'll have um, typically where they appear on their, their grid, in, on like a, a grid in terms of where are their speed and momentum qualities in relation or how does that link in with some of the stuff that they might be able to do on a pitch? So if, if you imagine like a, a square in quarters, someone might appear top left that might be right there, easy to catch, um, and they're slow as anything on another square they might be right you know they're hard to catch and hard to stop and then the bottom right might be um, hard uh, sorry easy to stop but hard to catch and, and what have you and then link that into right, what does that mean within a game based situation so are they do they have the physical qualities to pick up and go from the base going into contact from a short run up you know physically do they possess those qualities and then it enables I guess as a coaching team to look at that information and, and if a coach is coming to say look we've got such and such here he's crapping contact you know why do you think that might be well 
you know, we've looked at the physical qualities required for that, you know, predominantly say the momentum, he actually scores really good. So it might be something more technically related in terms of the body position that we need to consider. And so then it helps, you know, and inform some of the more game related um, stuff that's maybe a little bit more relevant for the coaches involved. Then on my second page of my sprint report, it has um, the various step characteristics. So I'd be looking at step velocity, step rate, step length, contact time, flight time, and various ratios to highlight whether someone's more step rate, step length dominant, or if they prefer more, they're more ground or, or flight based during acceleration. And again, that comes back to initially what I was saying about some of those higher order kinematic variables. And then I can see how different training methods might, uh, you know, change those, those variables over time and whether it, you know, <clears throat> whether shifting someone slightly more to the left or right is actually beneficial for that individual or not. So that, that would be my kind of speed data stuff that I present. And then the strength power diagnostic stuff, I think is, you know, it was banded around probably quite a long time ago now on, on, on Twitter, but that hasn't changed too much, although a bit, but I'll have, you know, for my um, hip talk stuff, you know, um, what, what the values are, left and right differences. Um, if I've looked at the, the rate related stuff as well, whether they're, you know, deficient in terms of rate of force or, or just their peak talk. For the drop jump stuff, I'll, I'll, I'll present the bilateral unilateral data and then how those unilateral data compare it in relation to the bilateral data and then also left to right differences for, for the unilateral stuff. And then the squat jump full velocity profiling stuff, I'll present that very similar to how Tamazino Morin does in terms of you know presenting what their profile is, what an optimal profile might be for, say, pushing off at about a 30 or 40 degree angle as if like in a sprint start. Sweet. That's great. Um, so I just want to move back onto the, the how that how then that profiling may affect what goes on um, in, in training. Yep. Cool. Um, so I, I've touched on on a few bits there already, but I think what um, mm-hmm. maybe if I I'll delve into what the contents of a typical speed session might look like um, first of all. So usually I, I I divide my kind of speed sessions into five different sections. Um, so a first session, uh, sorry, first section might be um, through with drills. So for my drills, I'm talking about relatively, um, how could I put it, low intensity activities, typically, typically cyclic in nature, that in part resemblance to sprinting action and aimed at reinforcing favorable body position, um, rhythm and timing, strength properties and, and tissue kind of tolerance. And if my session is acceleration themed, so I'll, I'll typically have the sessions themed often, not all the time. But if it's acceleration themed, then the, the drills I choose will be more aligned to helping develop technical qualities important for that sprint phase and then vice versa for, for max velocity. And the, the drills for me can be a really useful coaching tool, in my opinion, because they allow you to almost overemphasize an aspect or body or limb uh, position you're hoping the athlete can achieve when they sprint. Um, the athlete can then, in inverted commas, hold on to what that overemphasis feels like and then look to take that into some free sprinting following that. So it helps them key into that area. And then obviously going back to my, my profiling, well, obviously if I'm identifying that um, you know someone's lacking in their, their initial steps and in that acceleration phase and my drills will become much more oriented towards that and then the other way around with, with max velocity. Then the second component of my, my speed sessions will, you know, often involve some kind of jumps. Um, so, again, the selection of the jump will be decided based on the theme of the session. So usually more horizontally dominant ones for acceleration and more vertically dominant ones for max velocity. And as, as with the drills, I, I tend to favor a small number of activities with, with an end goal in mind for that activity. You know, it might take them several months, you know, some of them years to get to. Um, but what it means is that I've got this progression and regression regroup for those drills and those jumps to, to allow an athlete to complete those activities at the right level for them based on their skill level, exposure to that type of training. And it can also be helpful having that kind of continuum for, um, you know, if an athlete's returning from injury, they can get back on the continuum of those activities at the appropriate kind of level for them. Um, then the third thing I'll look at, um, I'm not sure really what the term is, but I'm calling priming activities. So by priming activities, I'm typically talking about activities where the athlete is pretty much um, sprinting, but the, the task 
that sprinting is slightly different to that of just free sprinting, such as like resisted sprint work, if we're talking more acceleration focused or running over small hurdles or, or, or wicket runs, if we're talking more max velocity work. And as mentioned earlier, that this provides the athlete with a, a really nice kind of kinesthetic feel for some of the techniques that you want them to achieve. And it provides context for the sprint, free sprint work, which might follow as well as developing some of the physical qualities important for in, in enhancing speed. Then the next um, aspect or component I'd have some, you know, free sprinting or, or change of direction based work. So here I'm talking about sprint or change of direction work where the emphasis may be to complete the efforts at um, or close to maximum, you know, capabilities. So this will involve gradual increase in exposure to the distances covered and the speed reached over time um, and also where some of the, the more technical oriented based coaching might come into play. And this is arguably, you know, the most important aspect of the session, in my opinion. And it's important that team sport athlete is ideally in a fresh state to perform this work so that they can actually adapt to running fast. Um, and here's where the speed sessions fit in, in, in the week amongst all their training commitments. You know, where it is, it, it, it's pretty key. Um, and the contents of, of this session, as, as alluded to earlier, will depend on a number of factors. So typically, um, at a global level, um, at the start of pre-season, the content of the sessions will be pretty much the same for all players. But as the weeks go by, they'll be shaped according to positional demands of the players, um, you know, the, the, the technical requirements that the coach wants and, you know, decisions then are made on the individual as to whether we work on, you know, some kind of deficit that's been identified in the profiling or, or enhance an existing strength. And I'll use some of the kinematic data to you know let, let's say for whatever reason we've decided that we okay we feel that for this individual that we want to eke out their step length slightly during the first you know 10 meters then we can you know put markers down for where we want their foot to strike based on the kinematic data we've collected so that's then again where the profiling starts to come in handy um and then the fifth kind of component of the sessions um i'll, I'll term kind of sport transference um, so this last component really will be where more specific linear speed and agility work were into the session, and I say specific to the sport. So put them in certain situations um, and specific aspects that might happen on a field where people aren't performing as well as they should in terms of you know speed or, or agility based um, qualities, and then we'll constrain the that component of, of the speed session to force them into those um, or, or performing those movements and work on those different areas. Now, depending on where the, the, the team and the individual players are um, with regards to the, say, the stage of the season or the logistics of that week, individual needs of the players, and, you know, that, that, that will all determine whether, you know, how many of those five components I've discussed will be in, in that individual training session. And I'd say that in a, in a typical 45-minute session, I'll usually have four to five of those components, um, <clears throat> again, depending on what's going on. Um, whereas if left, less time's afforded, like as you know, we kick on now, so for the rugby guys, more towards um, the season starting, we've got less time for some of those sessions. So you know, we pick and choose from those five components, which we feel are, are most important for that individual at that time and everything else that's going on, if, if that makes sense. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> Second breath. Yeah, there we go. That's, that's, that's superb. That's absolutely brilliant. So we're just going to take a very quick break in this chat with James. Hope you enjoyed part one. So immediately in part two, we discuss uh, mitigating hamstring injury risk and then move on to uh, James's recent paper in EGSS talking about how acceleration mechanics differ between team sport athletes and sprinters. So really interesting chat. And then we move on to some of the, the stuff around why SNC coaches aren't as comfortable uh, out on the track as they are in the gym. And then a little bit about internships at the end. But just before we do get into part two, I just want to say a big thanks to Fatigue Science for sponsoring this episode today. So if you haven't listened to episode 174 with Ian Dunican, Ian does an amazing job and miles better than I can about diving into the intricacies of the Fatigue Science Ready Band and the biomathematical modeling which go on in the background behind that product. So have a listen to that episode, but just in brief, what you're able to do with Fatigue Science is basically work backwards from a, a planned event, whether that be a training session or a game. And if there's a, a lot of travel leading up to that, 
you can, um, using, the, using the modeling in the, on the back end of fatigue science, it will recommend times when you should be uh, exposed to light, times when you, be sh when you should be sleeping. Um, so you can work back to be able to maximize that end uh, performance, whether that be a match or a training session after long haul travel. So Ian does a much better uh, job of explaining that than me, but have a listen to 174 and, um, and that will give you a really good insight into what fatigue science is about. But if you are interested in learning a little bit more about fatigue science, the company, what they offer, what they don't offer, head over to fatiguescience.com or follow them on Twitter at Fatigue Science. So over to part two with James, hope you enjoy. So just moving on very, 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 very briefly before we um, kind of make another jump. And that's just to have a little chat about the book chapter that you wrote for Anthony Turner's book that he edited. And one thing that you chatted about in there was protecting hamstrings, which has naturally come up a lot given the amount of team sport guys we've had on and the amount of uh, sprint guys we've had on. But just want to give us a bit of a summary of what you chatted about in that book chapter and maybe how that, how them and a theories and thoughts transfer to what you are doing with Harlequins and with the uh, Surrey Sports Park and with um, with the lacrosse girls? Yeah. Well, you know, it's an interesting thing. And I, I wouldn't necessarily consider myself a, you know, a hamstring expert or anything like that. So there's lots of other people there who are, you know, more, much better informed that, than I am. Um, I think one of the things to consider is that sometimes a hamstring injury just happens and we can overanalyze it. And, you know, pull things apart, program-wise, and for whatever reason, it just happens, you know. And I think we have to accept that just in the, the same way that sometimes someone will roll an ankle or tweak a knee or, or, or what have you, and, and it's part and parcel of sport. Yes, we obviously want to reduce those injuries as much as possible, and specifically at the, the hamstring site, but sometimes they just happen. So sometimes I think we, we look at, we, we over kind of complicate and, and overanalyze things. Um, I guess the, the, the approach that I would take, I, I think – Gradual exposure and progressive exposure to sprinting distances and speeds that are important. And I think that's, you know, one of the number one priorities that, that I'd have. So they're actually being exposed to sprinting, but it's sensible and it is progressed so that they can, you know, build a tolerance to those, those high speed running situations when the hamstring's most stressed. So, so first and foremost, I think that's pretty important. Um, tied in with that is, you know, the technical focus of, of how they sprint. Um, so, I don't know, give you an example. If someone really overstriding and pulling themselves through ground contact and then flicking out their back, um, then they're more likely to overutilize the hamstrings. And then if the hamstrings get more fatigued, then they're more likely to kind of ping down the line when they're tired. Um, so, th those two things are pretty important. Then I think that, you know, inevitably there needs to be, you know, some strength based work for the hamstrings. Um, you know, eccentric based strength work, isometric based strength work, I, I think are, are quite cool. Um, I have no problem whatsoever with, with Nordics. I, I think, um, you know, they, they work well. I use them quite a lot. Um, Touchwood, I've never had an issue with them. Um, and Touchwood, the majority of athletes that I work with have been pretty hamstring issue free. Um, and then, you know, I guess considering some of the more coordination based issues in, in terms of how the athlete moves. So I've touched on that in terms of how they sprint, but then, the, you know, there might be some additional stuff that can be done within the gym to help from a coordination perspective with that as well. So, you know, it's, it's an all-round approach, and, and sometimes the issues are not at the hamstring. So they might have, you know, issues in terms of their lumbopelvic position, and um, there might be issues at the ankle, you know, or wherever else. So it, it's trying to ensure that everywhere is as optimised as possible within the body. Um not just always at the, the hamstring kind of site. So there's lots of things to consider. And, and I, I'm not a fan of, you know, people saying oh, it's this way or that way. I think, you know, there's most multiple things to kind of consider there, really. And um, to be honest, I can't remember what um, we included within the book chapter on that. Um, but I hope I haven't deviated too far from what we said. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's fine, mate. That's fine. So in terms of just, if you're happy to dig a little bit deeper on that, it'd be yep. great. But if not, please say. Um, so in terms of hamstring injuries, look, people focus on the hamstring and then obviously looking up and, and below that. Yeah. What strategies would you recommend or look at in terms of if, if hamstrings are pinging and you're doing the, the relevant 
what you think is relevant work on the hamstrings, how then would you look above and below to assess whether that is the problem or not? Okay. Um, well, I think definitely having a look at how they sprint. So footage of how they sprint is particularly important there. Um, so I'll, I'll come on to the, the above and below stuff. But, you know, so if you can clearly see something that looks you know, dodgy in terms of they're really reaching out, they're really putting themselves through. And if that's really quite different to the other side where they don't have any issues, then there's definitely a sign there of, right, they, they might need some technical intervention and in how they run. Um, but then often that might be driven by some of the physical qualities that might need to be worked on within the gym. So here's where I, I think it's really quite important to consider that the strength-rated qualities around the ankle um, so do they have the reactive strength type properties, the stiffness um, with the right level of kind of compliance at the ankle joint? Because if they don't, then they were certainly going to overstride when, when they sprint um, and overutilize the hamstrings. So their strategy to run fast is going to be to overutilize the hip extensors to pull them through the stance phase rather than striking closer to their center of mass and being able to spring off quicker as a, as a result of a, a stiffer um, type ankle. So I'd look at those strength qualities definitely and, and you know, not always, but I have found, um, you know, a number of occasions where someone has a history of a, of a hamstring issue, but their ankle on that side it, it is terrible. Now, whether that's, you know, chicken or egg or whatever, I, I don't know. But so I'd, I'd certainly look at that. Um, and then in terms of above it, I think, you know, what, what's their lumbo-pelvic control like? So if they're – and you can look at this in the gym easier, you know, if they're pressing over the head – um, in terms of how do they move within all the fundamental patterns? Are they, you know, do they possess quite an anterior pelvic tilt that's going to create tension through the hamstrings constantly? Are they, you know, do they have quite a, a lordosis through their um, lumbar spine? And, you know, that kind of position is going to put the, the hamstring in a constant strain and, and, and tension. So, you know, then we can look at, right, what, what's driving that? Are they weak through certain areas? Are they just lacking coordination? Can they not stabilize their, their pelvis because of, you know, it might be simple things like their, their hip flexors want to take over everything. Are they not able to counter that through using their abdominals? Are they too tight through their lumbar erectors? Are their, you know, thoracics really rigid? So if their thoracics are rigid and they're not able to extend through their thoracics or at least straighten that spine, then we're going to get a pivot point at, at the lower back. So they're, they're the type of things that, that I'd, I'd consider. Um, I'm not sure if I've answered your question fully there. No, 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 no. You absolutely have. That's absolutely fine. Perfect. So I mentioned it before, and it was the recent article in EGSS, um, tracks, uh, team sports and track athletes. Do you just want to summarize that for us? I had a little read of it and I think I, I certainly need a summary. Um, so yeah, that'd yeah, be superb. Yeah, it's one of those things and I think it, you know, when you, you obviously have to write a paper in a certain way and sometimes it becomes so convoluted and over complex and the terminology you use just becomes a little bit ridiculous, but hey, it's one of those, one of those things of doing a PhD. Um, yeah, so, so it, so that paper is born out of the work that I'm completing as part of my PhD, um, and this is the, the first study published from it. And if we think about it, the, like the technical models out there on sprint acceleration and other phases of the sprint, um, but, but they're to an extent, and quite rightly so, based on the techniques of track sprinters since you know they are the first fastest athletes in the world. However, many team sport athletes, they don't possess the physical qualities to enable them to achieve some of those techniques and some of those physical qualities can't be changed. So things such as the length of their toes, for example, or the ratio of their forefoot to rear foot length or whatever it may be. So trying to shoehorn some team sport athletes into these positions may not always be that, that appropriate. And especially given, you know, there's a lot of information out there now about people self-optimizing and, you know, ecological dynamics and, you know, everyone's an individual, et cetera, et cetera. So then within the initial steps of a, of a sprint, you've got to consider that the task constraints of a block start wearing spikes on a track is really quite different to that when accelerating in team sports situations from a standing or possibly more likely a rolling start. So how appropriate is it to stick to these technical models for team sport athletes? Now, don't get me wrong. I think there are definitely potential key positions that, um, you know, sprinters adopt that, that, that we'd want to try and, and encourage with, with team sport athletes. And it they might be common across most people. Um, but essentially, the, what the study was trying to do, it was aiming to address 
which technical features of a sprint um, during the initial steps from can be taken. So what, what features from sprinters can be taken and transferred to the sprint practice of, of rugby players. And to, to cut a long, long story short, what we found was that, as, as expected, there were multiple and um, substantial differences in technique between rugby forwards versus backs and backs versus sprinters, likely due to, as I've already mentioned, different physical qualities and some kind of self-organisation around that, um, and also the differences in the constraints of the, of the starting conditions as well. Um, and also the way in which the athletes have been coached, I guess, is pretty important to consider as well, and the amount of time spent being coached to accelerate. However, when, when we looked at the relationships between the technical features of, of interest um, and sprint performance within each group, only one technical variable was, was consistently shown to be related to, to performance, which is um, the toe-off distance. So the, the horizontal distance from the um, stance toe and the instant of toe-off to the, the centre of mass. Does that kind of make sense, that distance I'm talking about? Um, and that that shouldn't be kind of confused with how extended the leg is at toe-off, um, but more so it, it's looking at how forward-oriented the body is at, at, at toe-off. Um, now, I guess this is really a function of or a sign of an effective push-off during that stance phase, and, it, and that has been associated with sprint performance during the initial steps and an effective horizontal force production. Um, but I guess to me, what, what's interesting about this is that there seem to be multiple strategies that athletes adopt at touchdown, um, but that they can still achieve a similar performance outcome as long as, you know, they're achieving a relatively long kind of toe-off distance. Um, that, that said, though, when, when you look at the relationships between toe-off distance and sprint performance in the study, um, they're not always that high. So it's not necessarily the be-all and end-all when it comes to sprint performance as well. And again, this might be due to a number of reasons, um, but I can think of a, a few athletes, for, for example, where due to the inability to dorsiflex the big toe because of, say, previous injuries, they're unable to achieve these longer forward lean positions at toe-off. Now, that long forward lean position might afford them a longer contact time, or relatively speaking, to maximise the horizontal impulse produced to increase their acceleration performance. Um, but for these athletes with big toe issues unable to get into that position, their strategy then is going back to what I was saying at the start about contact and flight time. So their strategy then is often to increase their step rate so that more steps can be produced over the initial steps to maximise their acceleration performance so that they can match the accrual of, accrual of horizontal impulse produced over the, the same kind of distance. It's just that it takes them more steps to do so. So it's not necessarily appropriate for those individuals to try and force them into, you know, really extended forward lean positions, you know, especially if that's due to a physical constraint that we might not be able to change. And for such individuals trying to achieve that longer forward lean position might exacerbate their big toe, you know, issue and lead to worse performance. So there's always this optimization issue related to these body positions, which influence the ground reaction forces causing the, you know, the step rates, step length, contact times and flight times that we see. I'm sorry, I've gone off on a, a bit of a, a, a tangent there, but does that kind of address most of the stuff that you... No, no, yeah, 100%. That's 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 great. And I think, um, I know it'll be on your Twitter account, but I'll link to it in the uh, on the website as well so people can get a, people can get a copy and have a little read and probably come back to you with the same question that I had. <laughs> Summarise. <laughs> yeah. Um, but just to move on, last couple of points before I let you go. Um, caution when using cues, and this was one thing that you brought up in the in the little chat how we beforehand. Yeah, you just want to explain what your thoughts are there. Yeah, it's, uh, it's it's a quick one, really. I think you know that there's a lot of there's a lot of information out there on you know cues using internal focus, external focus, and Nick Winkleman's done some great work in that area. Um, I, th I think sometimes people can get too caught up in, um, you know, going down a certain route. And, and often for e each individual, they might need a, a combination of different cues that, that, that work for them. Um, but one of the things that I think a lot of SNC coaches fall into the, the, the trap of is that 
if, if they're working with someone within a, a speed setting and in that acute situation within that session, they see that their sprint technique has in inverted commas improved, they automatically think that they're running faster. And I can tell you that 99 times out of 100 in an acute setting, if you cue someone and they change their technique from what, how they'd normally sprint, they will be running slower. Um, and now that that's absolutely fine if that's part of a longer term strategy to try and shift them towards a certain technique so that then it becomes more subconscious for them to produce that um, way of sprinting within a, a game-based setting or testing, whatever it is. But I think we just need to be a little bit cautious in that they will probably be running slower in that acute situation. So I think sometimes it's necessary to explain to the athlete that during a match or during testing or, or whatever, at a key time where they have to run as fast as possible, don't don't think necessarily about you know changing your technique. Just just do it because your performance might suffer. Now you know there, there might be um, the flip side to that that if, if someone's a real injury injury you, you know risk went to happen, then obviously you might want to adapt it. But I just think it's an important point for, for coaches to understand. And and you know and I, I've measured this in hundreds on hundreds and hundreds of occasions now in rugby players, um, football players, lacrosse players, um, sprint track athletes. Um, and as I say, there's no problem with queuing at all. Like obviously I use a lot of queuing, but there's no problem with, with queuing and, and, and trying to make that technical change. But just be aware that in that acute setting, they will probably run run slower as a, as a result. Um, does that make sense? Absolutely, 100%. And... Last but not least, we'll go on to one thing that I think is really interesting that you uh, that you wanted to probably another little brief one. But why SNC coaches are not as comfortable coaching speed as they are strength? And I'd love to get your thoughts on that because I think everyone's probably everyone's definitely thinking it and wondering why. So I'd love to get your opinion on it. And thanks for bringing it up, by the way. No worries. Yeah, no, I think this is definitely the, the case in the majority of cases. So it, it's weird. It's like it's flipped round for me now. Where I'm, I feel much more comfortable on, on field doing sprint stuff than I do in the, in the, in the gym. Um, but but it's, I, what I find is that with all my interns coming through and a lot of the coaches that I talk, talk to that, you know, they always say, oh, you know, I feel much more stronger in the gym than I do coaching speed-related stuff out, out on the field or track or whatever it is. And But it, it completely makes sense because you think all those individuals, the amount of time that they've spent training would have been in the more in the gym than it would have been out doing speed-related stuff. And also, if you think about the percentage of time that are actually spent coaching speed-related staff relative to the gym, that's very imbalanced as well. Then you consider the, um, not all, but you know, a lot of um, kind of educational programs, degrees, courses out there, there's probably a lot more emphasis on strength training as there is to speed. So it's, you know, my, my advice to those people is you've got to get out and you've got to be coaching them. Um, because if you don't do that, and, and and also if you don't train yourself like it, I just I think you're never going to get to the same stage of level of comfort that you are in the gym. And and it's classic when you, you look at kind of the programs that people write in, in, in the gym will be extremely detailed, um, sets, reps, intensities, um, notes, blah blah blah. And then when you look at kind of what what's planned in terms of speed stuff, we might have a, a bit of a scribble about stuff. And then to me, it just means that they they don't necessarily they haven't built up as detailed pictures as they need. And, you know, they're just less informed as a result of all the issues I've talked about, really. Mm-hmm. And this is where it's linked to my rant the other day about getting employment in strength and conditioning. Is this right? Yeah, yeah. Um, well, I mean, yeah, partly linked to that. And, and I, I think, you know, I, I enjoyed listening to some of your ranting. And it's something I've, <laughs> I've, I've stayed relatively quiet on over the years. But, um, you know... There's so much information out there now on um, on strength and conditioning, and you know the, the challenges of, of getting a job in SNC. And quite rightly, as you've pointed out, you know waiting for that um, role in a, in a pro club, and then people realizing, well, actually, it's probably you know I'm not always cracked up, not necessarily what I thought it might be. And there are so many other avenues to explore, and it, it's ridiculous. And what it means is that people in those positions do need a bit of a kick up the backside and they're, they're going to be a bit more proactive and go out and, and make things happen, as you quite rightly said. Um, and it, it, it's, you know, I, I get a bit frustrated hearing people saying, oh, well, you know, I wasn't really given an interview for this or given an interview for that, but you can't just expect these days to send your CV in 
and you know necessarily get a look in. Now, with our intern program here, we get over 100 applications each year, um, which is ridiculous. And I'd say that half of those probably have an MSc, and then half of those with an MSc are also UKCA accredited. Now, it, it's great in a sense now because we're at the stage where there are lots of SNC degrees. We've got the UKCA and what have you. So we're ensuring people of a certain quality standard and level, which is great. And we've got this level of standardization. But what it means now is that it becomes increasingly more difficult to set people apart from one another. So if I'm reviewing 100 CVs and I'm seeing exactly the same thing each time, it, it, it's really difficult to make a judgment cause to who may be more appropriate than the other person. So, And I think it's something that you talked about before is that you've got to try and find a niche. You've got to try and find out where, where are those gaps, what are those organizations, teams, and you know what are they potentially missing and where can I add that value? So one of the things that I always say to, to the intern team when they start with me each year is I say, look, use this experience and time to try and find out an area of interest that you know doesn't keep you ticking over and doesn't just keep you ticking over in terms of you know your, your excitement around learning stuff, but also might be actually really quite valuable to other organizations and teams when you move on. And I do think finding that niche is quite important. Now, I, I don't want to draw people away from, you know, the fundamentals and the basics of SNC, which are, let's face it, that's 85% of, of the role. But that 15%, that real niche kind of stuff, I think is often more missing now for some individuals than, than it used to be by the very nature of having things so standardized now. Mm-hmm. I just think there's, and this is not to replicate the rant that I had, but I think there's a lot of complaining around, or I see a lot of complaining, whether that's reality or not, um, around the lack of jobs and this should be different, that should be different. Well, it's not different. Like that, This is how it is, so you need to learn to deal with how it is right now and, like you say, create the niche and, and find the find the little gaps that you can, you can plug. And I think... It's, like you say, it's very important for people not to move away from the fundamentals, but like keep doing that, mm. but use the, use that and the secondary things that you've learned from them fundamentals to be able to pivot and, and move into something that other people aren't seeing. And I think there's so many examples out there of people doing that and being really successful. And I think because of the amount of people that are going for these, well, like you say, 100 going for an internship, and I'm sure there's other internships that are doing exactly the same. It'll be the people that, like, naturally, people will fall by the wayside and end up in insurance or, you know, something other than that. But the people that are able to pivot and able to find them little niches are the ones in 10 years who will be going, these guys are killing it. These guys are absolutely nailing it in schools. Like, how did he get into schools? Yeah, because 10 years ago, he knew there was a gap, and now he's the go-to guy for you know kids under 13 or whatever yeah. or he ended up at you know x academy because he's the you know the, the, the right guy f- for, for that for that uh, population so it's just it's, it's thinking ahead of time isn't it and definitely not been complaining about the here and now because that's how it is deal with it yeah and everyone and the thing is everyone knows what it's like so you you know what it's like so it, you've got to do something about it don't just you know, kick back and, and, and whinge. And on, on that school front, I, I 100% agree. I think it's an area that, you know, is still relatively untapped, but a lot of the schools are crying out for it. And also the, the, the education for the PE teachers as well. So I, I go into quite a lot of, um, I, for, I go into quite a lot of primary schools, um, like in my local area. And I, I do this, I do this actually for free, mainly because my kids go to like, schools and stuff, but on just, you know, helping some of the primary teachers with, some of the basics of you know athletic development and, and movement and what have you and they lap it up and they abs- they absolutely love it so uh, the market there definitely but anyway um i digress slightly run run to over yeah. run to over um so anyone that wants to ask any questions or just get to know a little bit more about what you've got going on what's the best place for people to go um probably twitter i'd say um so my hang on a sec um you don't you have my is it wildy underscore i think yeah wildy so w-i-l-d-y underscore j-j um yeah so there or do i give an email oh, i don't know if i give an email people people can be don't give an email yeah people can get in touch on twitter yeah. and then if they want to get you an email get an email yeah, yeah. cool 
Is it weird that I know your Twitter handle off by heart nearly? <laughs> Maybe weird that you know it more than I do, yeah. <laughs> right, mate. Well, thank you for that. And if anyone does want to get your email address, just, yeah, get in touch with James on, uh, on Twitter and you can go from there. But thank you very much. Really appreciate your time. Come right. on again. Thanks for having um, me on. Long overdue. Oh. No, pleasure, mate. And we'll, uh, we'll keep in touch. Thanks, mate. Cheers, Rob. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast. Hope you enjoyed the chat with James and got as much out of it as I did. Like I said at the start, I think this is the episode which I've taken the most notes and come off the back of the episode thinking, got so many more questions to ask. So thank you very much to James for giving up his time and, and obviously his, his knowledge in the area. So big thanks to Val Performance and Fatigue Science for sponsoring this episode today. If you are enjoying the podcast, please feel free to, or I encourage you, to subscribe on your chosen podcast player. And if you are extra kind and you are an iTunes listener, please leave a rating and a review. So thanks a lot for tuning in, and I'll chat to you next week.